Good morning. Uh, again. It's uh, good to be uh, preaching again. Uh, so if you were here this summer, you know I went through Thessalonians, but prior to that I've been preaching through the book of Colossians. And, and so when I was asked to preach once again, uh, instead of trying to get creative, I thought, you know, it would be good to keep chugging away in Colossians. So today uh, we are in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Uh, and that page in the blue chairback Bibles is 984, page 984, if that is the Bible you are using. I just want to open this up in a word of prayer. Lord, it is marvelous. It is marvelous that you have given us your word, that we can know who you are. Lord, as I preach out of this word, might it be your word, might it not be my word? Uh, might it show us uh, more about uh, both the salvation that you've brought for us and, and what that means ultimately in our lives. Lord, we just pray uh, that you uh, would be our thought today. We just pray all this in your name. Amen. So there are two kinds of decisions, at least two that I'm going to talk about today. There's the hard decision and there's the easy decision. And uh, if you ask my wife, she would say, I make every decision a difficult decision, right? I, I, I tend to overthink things, right? And, and spend too much time trying to figure out. But for most people, generally, decisions are pretty easy, right? You, you know, uh, well, not all decisions, right? But some of them, right? So you, you go to your favorite restaurant, right? And uh, that's a pretty easy decision, right? I'm going to get the same thing I always get. Why would I get anything else? That's a pretty easy decision. Now, buying a car, that, you know, that's a little more difficult position, decision, right? Ultimately, I don't, I don't want to buy a lemon. You know, well, this is a new model, or the parts gonna, are, are they going to be available after 10 years of owning the vehicle, that sort of thing. You, you ask yourselves harder questions, and it takes you a lot longer to finally make the decision and sometimes you make the decision and you realize, man, I just didn't do a good enough job. That was the wrong decision. So there are, there are easy decisions, there are hard decisions. And today, I want to talk to you about an easy, a very, very easy decision. And so I'm going to read through uh, our passage first and then we'll, we'll get into the sermon. Uh, so starting with Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you were 
circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So I'm going to give you just a very basic outline of how I see this passage working out. Basically, Paul is telling us, do this, don't do this, because of this. Right? So do this, don't do this, because of this. Right? So what is he telling us to do? Well, the first thing he tells us to do is to walk in him. So let's look at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so he's talking to believers, therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And he backs us up. You know, repetition is the mother of learning. So he backs us up with a couple of other phrases. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So rooted, built up, established. He, he keeps bringing back these ideas. So, so let's think about the nature of walking. So look at me right now. Am I walking? No? All right. Am I walking? All right. How about now? Am I walking? No. So, so the idea that he's trying to get to when he says walk in him is this continual idea, right? It's, and that's why he backs it up with rooted, built up, and established, right? So rooted. So you, uh, a lot of people have a green thumb in here. And you, you, you plant a plant. The plant already has the roots. If it doesn't have roots, it's not a plant. It's a seed. So a plant always has roots, always has roots. They just tend to get deeper over time, right? And so when you finally get to cutting down that tree in the front yard, you know, it's kind of hard. You know, its roots are going everywhere, and, and maybe it's because the roots are encroaching on your foundation that you're removing it, right? And so this idea, well, the roots have always been there since it was just a little sapling, but now the roots have continued to be rooted, right? They continue to be rooted or uh, built up. We can think about the process of building a house. In the process of building a house, most houses, now I realize that there are exceptions to the rule, most houses are not built in a day. You know, it's this process, right? You, you pour the foundation, you lay the studs, uh, you put up the walls, you put the trusses on top, and, and ultimately it's this process of being built up, right? Just like walking, it has to continue to be done until ultimately you reach your destination. And we're not there yet. 
And then finally, he says, established. So think about uh, some of your favorite clothing brands. They, they, even on their articles of clothing, will tell you when they were established. And what are they trying to do? Well, you know, the further they can put that date back, right? They can say, this is how good we are. We've been established since the 1800s. And we're still in existence today. This is how good we are. And so it's this progress, right? They've been established. They've been established. They aren't just established right now. They've been established. So Paul in saying, right? So as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So again, he's talking to believers. And then he says, walk, be rooted built up, be established. And for us, for us, I think this is very important to listen to. Because I think we like the first sentence, right? Those of us who have received Christ the Lord, amen! Amen! But then it says, walk in Him. Walk in Him. Boy, Walk, root, be rooted, be built up, be established. That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of work, guys. And ultimately, two things, two things about that. It's a passion of love. It's a passion of love. You will ultimately never do it if you don't think it's important. Like, like everything else, you only do something when you think it's critical. You know, you, you, some people don't change the tires until they've popped. Why? Because they looked at them, they, they, they didn't think it was critical, right? But those people who, you know, their, their, their car is their baby, you know, they're constantly looking at those tires, kind of analyzing them, thinking, you know, it could go another 1,000 miles, could go another 2,000, but... I'm just going to change him. Right? It's a labor of love. And the second thing is, ultimately, um, in one sense, it's no work at all. In one sense, it's no work at all. Uh, because it is, it's life-giving. We think about work as a life-draining sort of thing. Uh, you know, I think um, I heard this guy talking, this, this younger guy in his teens, talking about work. And how, oh, you know, work, I, uh, I got to go to work. It's going to drain me. It's going to be the worst. And, uh, boy, he's working probably four hours at a, a fast food restaurant. And I'm thinking, where'd you learn to talk like that? And, and the only thing I could assume was that he had heard someone else talk like that. And, and work is a chore. You know, work is difficult. And, therefore, I should complain about it. But, ultimately... Uh, the sort of work that we're endeavoring upon is not going to uh, decrease us. It's not going to suck the life out of us, but it's actually going to put the life back into us. And so when we talk about uh, this sort of walking, this sort of being rooted, right, the best sort of trees are the ones that can gather the nutrients from those deep roots and put it into the leaves. Right? If, if you have a poor root system, that tree is not going to survive. And so uh, that, that's, those are the two things I want to be thinking about there. And 
reflect on this, and everyone reflect on this. I think all of us are predisposed to the idea that I've got it right. You know, my, my spiritual life is flourishing and it's just perfect. It, it's exceptional. I could write a book, sell it. But that's, ultimately, I think we all have, a, have places in which we could be pushing ourselves forward just a little bit more. Right? We can be pushing those roots out a little bit more to catch more of that life-giving water that we find in God's Word, in prayer, in fasting. Right? Don't get me started on fasting. Um, there are so many things that we could obtain uh, by walking in Him. All right, so this is the do this section. So do this. Walk in Him. Be rooted. Be established. Be built up. Now we go into verse 8. He tells us what we're not supposed to do. What we're not supposed to do. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not, and not according to Christ. So we're supposed to walk in Him. And now we're told, see to it that no one takes you captive. And this word is actually a very rare word. Um, and it actually is, is talking about people being kidnapped and enslaved. People being kidnapped and enslaved. The funny part is, see to it that no one takes you captive. Right? It's a warning. People are out there. People are waiting for you. They're ready to take you captive. It's, it's a warning. It's not, don't take yourself captive, but there are other people out there who would love, love to see you not walking in Christ. And they're going to try their hardest to take you captive, to take you away from Him. And now what are they going to take you captive with? They're going to take you captive, so by philosophy an empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now this can be kind of tricky. We look at some of these things, and I think we look at, the, particularly I look at the word philosophy, and I'm like, well, is all philosophy evil? feels like there are Christian philosophers who, who use the Bible as the basis of their philosophy. Ultimately, what he's trying to get at, uh, you know, if we think, so philosophy, the basic word means the love of wisdom. And if we look in the Bible, we see Proverbs and we see Ecclesiastes. I don't think the, the Bible has problems with wisdom. I think the Bible has problems with the source of that wisdom. So if we go to the next thing, uh, so don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, okay? So according to human tradition, so the, the source of this philosophy, the, the source of it is human tradition versus God. So uh, if you look at the very first proverb, uh, it is a father's plea that this young man listen to the, the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord, right? So the source of the biblical wisdom books is God. 
It's the thing that's always present in, in the, the writer's mind as he is writing wisdom sayings down. But when it comes to this sort of philosophy, this sort of wisdom, it is coming from uh, men. It is a man-made human tradition. Right? It is not coming from God. And ultimately, it's deceit. Right? It's empty deceit. So if I were to let someone take me captive by this philosophy, there are no fruitful ends. There are no fruitful ends. They're going to oversell. I'm sure I've used this analogy before, but it's like a snake oil salesman. He comes into town making great promises about what his philosophical product can do for you, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, hopefully you realize it quickly, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, it's just snake oil. It's worthless. You know, the bottle probably costs more than the product inside of it. And, and people live their lives. Human traditional philosophy that leads to empty deceit. And don't be taken captive by them. And, and one of the ways you can analyze this is, boy, you look at them, it doesn't seem to be working for you. But the source is, is man. Now it says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not, and not according to Christ. So they exclude Christ completely uh, from the equation. Uh, he, he does mention elemental spirits. Uh, you know, that's, boy, that's a hard one. And in terms of, of trying to pin that down, uh, one of the things I would say is it seems like he's mentioning uh, elements in the world and people who uh, perhaps worshipped them, uh, earth worshippers, uh, which I think has a strong tie to uh, people who potentially live on the island, right? People who worship the earth, trust in the elemental spirits uh, to uh, give them some sort of power, and uh, don't trust them. Because ultimately, it's not according to Christ, and that's the, the fundamental problem. So, there's a lot of cash value right there for application. You're going to hear a lot of things. You're going to hear a lot of people talking about a lot of things that are not according to Christ. I actually met someone in this church who was peddling a philosophy of man that was not according to Christ. And uh, very sad, very sad. So the first thing is don't be taken captive by it. It doesn't have any power. It has the appearance of power. And they're going to tell you it does. But at the end of the day, it's empty deceit. The second thing is, take, you know, we desire to take all things captive for Christ. So we, we run into these sorts of people, and instead of being taken in by them, we would desire that they were not deceived, ultimately by, by the prince of the power of the air, who would desire that they not bow the knee to Jesus. But all of that 
is based on doing the first thing. All of this is based on walking in Christ. But if you're not walking in Christ, you're preparing yourself to be taken captive. And that's why he says, do this, don't do this. Now some of you might be skeptical, but why? Isn't Christianity just another man-made religion? Isn't it just another human tradition or philosophy? Well, Paul wants to clarify abundantly, abundantly clarify, because it's Paul. He wants to abundantly clarify why you should not choose the second option and you should choose the first. Going down to uh, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How much deity? The fullness? No, no, no. The whole fullness. He makes an emphatic point. It's not just part of the deity, like God shares his throne with some other God. And that, well, if I worship Jesus 50% of the time, and I worship this human tradition, this empty deceit 50% of the time, maybe I'm going to make it. No. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. 100%. What does that require of us? It requires our 100%. Right? There are so many idols out there. So many things that we could bow our knees to that are made, right, of the elemental spirits. But Paul wants us to know that it is God alone. Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. And we say yes and amen to that, but ultimately our hearts betray us when we start trying to to manipulate God, to manipulate the universe to do the things that we want it to do. Right? Because we lack faith. We say, God, I don't want it your way, I want it my way. We lean on this human tradition to try getting the outcomes that we want, but ultimately... Jesus Christ demands your praise and your worship, and he is worthy. Why? Because the whole fullness of deity dwells in him. Now we might be concerned, because what if this God is not for us? Well, Jesus is fully God, but what if he's against us? Maybe we'd try mustering a force against him. But that's not what we're told. After we're told that the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in him, verse 10, and you have been filled in him. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is where we hear that Jesus is not against us, but he is definitely for us. If we are in him, he is in us. And you know what it tells us? That he is the head 
of all rule and authority. And we could talk about powers on this earth. We could talk about presidents and monarchs and princes and kings. But Jesus has rule over the whole thing. And he is for us and he is in us as we are in him. So what sort of choice am I making? Going on, verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what's the sign that I am in Christ? How do I know that I have, I have consciously made this decision that I am in Christ? Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised. And some of you might be thinking about the Old Testament and the promise made to Aaron about when to circumcise your sons so that they can be part of the people and not cut off. But if we continue reading, we hear with a circumcision made without hands. This is not something that has been earthly done to you by human hands, but it is a, a thing that has been achieved by Christ Jesus. And now you're kind of thinking, boy, what is he talking about? I don't remember this. All right. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. All right. So here's our clarifying statement. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So the circumcision that he is talking about is is ultimately performed by Christ and it is simplified in the act of baptism. Right? Having been buried with him in baptism, right? So you've, you've died and in which you were also raised with him through the powerful working God and, and you were raised. So just, just some word on baptism. A lot of things have been said about baptism. I think looking at this, uh, we see a couple of things, right? So the circumcision isn't made by human hands, right? So baptism is not the act that this is talking about. Baptism isn't the circumcision itself, but it is the sign of the circumcision. So I want you to think about a stop sign on the road and you're driving, and you drive right through the stop sign, you don't even listen to it. Well, ultimately, the stop sign has made you do nothing. The stop sign has made you do absolutely nothing. Now, the stop sign can be there, and you can stop. And ultimately, you've just stopped, and there's a sign that says stop in front of you. 
again, ultimately the stop sign has made you do nothing except for the sign has told you that you should stop. But it, it, it ultimately has no ability to make you stop. So it's not like you're going to run through the stop sign and all of a sudden a spike strip's going to pop out of the ground and pop all of your tires and you're going to halt in the middle of the road. It has no ability to make you do anything. Right? And this is what baptism is like. It is a sign of something that has already been performed in you. Right? So the circumcision has been made without human hands and yet uh, we, we use this symbol as a a display of, uh, if you want to think about uh, someone being baptized in water, uh, they will be submerged, right? They'll be, they'll be buried with Christ, and ultimately, they will be raised with Christ. I was actually at a church where their baptismal was a coffin. It's a very powerful image of of what the baptism sign means. And it's not unimportant. Signs are not unimportant. Just like the stop sign is not unimportant, it's just not able to make you do anything. And so, you know, uh, I'm not sure where everyone is, but if you are a believer, I would strongly, strongly, uh, you know, push you to think about your baptism, and ultimately, what was it uh, for? And what was it symbolizing? Was it symbolizing uh, this, this burial and death with Christ and this, this being raised into newness of life? Because, uh, you know, I'm sure I would love to talk to you about uh, baptism. Any of the elders would love to talk to you about baptism. Um, but it, it is definitely uh, one of those things that uh, is a very, it's a very powerful symbol. Uh, something to consider. All right, moving on. So we have been circumcised uh, without human hands and going down, uh, in which, so verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been connected with Christ in both his, his death and his resurrection. Why? Because the person who has the whole fullness of deity is now dwelling in us as believers. Which is good news for us because ultimately, prior to Christ living on us, we were going to die and we were not going to live again. We were going to continue to die. We were going to continue to be punished in Hades. So it's good news for us when we hear that ultimately people who were sentenced to death have now received this pardon that leads to life. He goes on, verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, right? So we were uncircumcised, and in Christ we are circumcised. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So now he's going about talking about 
the process by which Christ achieves this new life in us. And we're told that we have trespasses. We have broken God's holy law. We have not lived in ways that we were supposed to live. And ultimately, if we stayed in that uncircumcised state of living in the flesh, that we were going to ultimately die and not have this, this life that Jesus offered. But, but, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, not just some of them, all our trespasses. He continues on further by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You can think about this as a courtroom scene and the judge is about to pass the sentence. Guilty. And we all know we're guilty. We've broken the law that the judge is talking about and we are guilty. But in Christ, all of those trespasses are gone. And the judge is going to say, you are not guilty in Christ Jesus. All those legal demands are gone. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There have been some people who have said that we can receive forgiveness from God without the cross. The cross is bloody. It's violent. If we look here, the only way that those trespasses can go away is in the cross. The only way that God is going to set them aside is in the cross. Christ lived such a sacrificial life for us and we want to disregard it because it's too violent for our sensibilities? No. Christ had great violence done to him. And I love him all the more for doing it. What did he affect? So he affected our salvation from, from the sins that we have, from this, the legal demands that were upon us. But he also does something else. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There were people, right? There are people who want to take us captive. They have someone who they're serving. And Christ, in his death, not only delivers us from our trespasses, but he also, he, he disarms them. He snatches the swords right out of their scabbards and disarms them so that they have no more power. They can't poke at you any longer. He puts them to open shame. Maybe as a kid, the teacher called you out in front of your entire class. Open shame. 
and we see it in the cross. Satan no longer has power here, but Jesus in the cross puts him to open shame and shows how weak he really is. How wrong he really is and how just God really is. By triumphing over them in him. We do not have a king who is ineffectual. Some people see the cross as a sign of weakness, a savior who comes and dies, but ultimately the cross is a sign of Christ's strength. It is the means by which he comes and triumphs over the entire principality of the world. And he he overthrows all of the powers that were working. Don't scoff at the cross. But realize that it is the, the power of God showing us how weak Satan really is. Right, so let's think about this. Paul has given us two options. He said, walk in him. Don't be taken captive by them. Walk in him. Don't be taken captive by them. Why? Because this, this is who Christ is in comparison to all these human traditions. Isn't the choice obvious? Pray with me. Lord, we look at this word that you have given us and we we know the excellence of Christ. We know his wonder-working power in the cross. Lord, continue to convince us as we walk as we are rooted, as we're established, as we're built up, might we never, never be so so blind as to be taken captive. Lord, we just desperately pray for those of our brothers and sisters who have been taken captive, who have fallen away from you, who have listened to this earthly tradition. We pray ultimately that Christ would triumph in their hearts. Lord, thank you for loving us so much, for doing such a grand work on behalf of people who did not deserve it. We pray all this in your name. Amen.